compared to all these other industries, so again, energy, insurance, construction, and, and elevators specifically, I can go and have a meeting with a client and they can tell me this feature is stupid. Why do you have this feature? Or there should be this feature here. This button should be different. It should have a different functionality. In tech, and specifically in like startups and mid-sized businesses, and I guess depending on how senior you are, maybe at any level, you can take that feedback and give it to a product manager. And within a week, you can have turnover and have that that feature resolved. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. On today's episode of Decision Point, Brad sits down and talks with Katrin Colt. Katrin is a sales manager at Growth Unions. Katrin sits down with Brad to discuss all the different sales areas she's participated in and what makes the tech sales world so much different and more enjoyable for her. Okay, great. Well, that sounds like a, gr- a great place for us to start, kind of the transition from old school sales to full-on tech automation sales. So why don't you just kind of, how'd you? I mean, tell me how you got here. So you were selling insurance and doing, con- was that construction? Were you selling construction? Okay, so I went to university to get a marketing degree. I thought I was a very creative person. And I went by no idea where I wanted to work. So I just found the biggest marketing department in, at the time, is Winnipeg, Manitoba. And that was for an energy company. And so I get placed in this marketing department, but in a commercial sales role, which I didn't even know that that was a real job. <laughs> you know, like I, I was going to university. I thought I was going to work in one of those kind of more traditional functions. And, and I realized you could get paid really good money just to talk to people and that this was a pretty sweet gig. And so I started falling into commercial sales roles after that. So I spent three years in energy and then I got headhunted for an insurance company, spent a couple years there and then got headhunted for an elevator company. So I was selling elevators into the construction space. And like all these things were really, you know, they're interesting in their own ways, but they weren't industries that I was particularly passionate about and something that I was getting more and more interested in, like so many people was tech and all the opportunities that came with it. So after kind of just taking the roles that were falling in my laps to a certain degree, I decided to flip the table and leave these like very secure (laughs) like strong roles in these more traditional industries and flip the table and join a little tech startup in Toronto. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know a guy that was selling. So I got so many just kind of initial questions for you. So the first question that I have for you is that I actually know somebody that sells elevator uh, shaft and support. So tell me real quick, what was your experience like in that space? Okay. So elevators are really cool in that. Okay. So construction project can last, you know, can take anywhere between like five to 10 years, you know? So it starts with an architect having an idea, a little twinkle in their eye of some building design that they they want to implement and pairing with the developer is going to pay for it. But the funny thing about the elevator trade is that you have to sell about four different people to get the job done. So you need to get specced in with the architect back when the idea is just a twinkle in their eye so that you can get your product specced in their design. 
So that happens like two years, usually before anyone puts a shovel in the ground. And then once they actually start publicizing that there's a developer that's going to fund the project and everything else, then you have to get in with the developer and convince the person who's actually paying for the thing that it's worth, you know, that one elevator is actually different than another, which is like a pretty big case to be made, right? Very few people would really care about the differences. And then when it actually goes out to tender, so now there's actually a contractor who's in charge of really choosing which elevator they're going to go with because they're the one building and installing it. Then you have to convince them that they should go with you. And, and it's for completely different reasons than the other two. Like the architect probably wants the design to be kind of interesting. They want it to be energy efficient and meet all these certifications. The developer probably just wants it to be affordable. And then the the contractor wants the team, like the implementation to be really good. So you have, it's like, it's Personas 101 with selling an elevator over like three, four years. Right. They start at a hundred thousand. So that's all. So you're, so you're, just, you're just working all these projects, working these three channels that could all presumably go wrong, right? At one of those three junctures, you could lose the deal. Oh, exactly. And over such a long period of time. You know, that's just, so, you know, I would assume now that you're in the tech and in the, in the space that you're in, your sales cycle is probably pretty quick. So it probably feels <laughs> like a relief to be able to look at a pipeline that might close over 90 days or six months versus yeah. Two, Versus a year or two, right? Well, now it is. So like now the role I'm in, it's like, it could be anywhere from like a two week to a month sales cycle. But so the funny thing is that, so I thought that I was making this really bold, strong move coming into tech and the company actually joined when I left Winnipeg, which felt like leaving the small town and moving to the big city, Toronto. Are you from Winnipeg? Are you from Winnipeg? I'm from Flin Flon, Manitoba. It's a tiny northern town, 800 kilometers north of absolutely anything. Um, but yeah, so I'm originally from Flin Flon, went to Winnipeg, and then things kind of escalated from there. That's funny. And like, it reminds me of the the movie at Mr. Deeds, where they get, where the girls, where that, the, what is her name? The actress in the movies from this little small town that's got a, Anyways. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's memorable. It, it has that <laughs> people. If you meet someone from Flin Flon, you you know, right? Like, oh, it's like immediate connection, right? Yeah, they they stay with that, you somehow. No, does that? Okay, so I I am, but I'm a pretty passive sports fan. When sports teams that I you know of the surrounding city that I'm living in, when they're winning, I'm a fan. When they're not. I probably don't ask me any follow-up questions. Basically, <laughs> we got. We, I'm, I'm similar. We got a guy. We got a guy on our team who's the sports guy. So when I get in the room and they start asking sports questions, I got a default. I, I got to give him the wink so he knows to take over. Exactly. Yeah. So I had I had listened. So my kind of follow-up question for you is that I had saw saw a tweet last week that said, if a guy tells me he's in anything other than technology, he's immediately attractive. So the question is, why is technology such an attractive space to be in? Yeah. I, okay. So here's why I love it. Compared to all these other industries. So again, energy, insurance, construction, and, and elevators specifically. I can go and have a meeting with a client and they can tell me this feature is stupid. Why do you have this feature? Or there should be this feature here. This button should be different. It should have a different functionality. In tech, and specifically in like startups and mid-sized businesses, and I guess depending on 
how senior you are, maybe at any level, you can take that feedback and give it to a product manager. And within a week, you can have turnover and have that, that feature resolved. There's no other space I've worked in that's like that, where I am directly influencing the outcome of the product. And so I can go back to my either potential customers or customers and say, thank you for that feedback. Here's that thing that you wanted. Like it's there now, like it's so customizable and, and you feel like you're directly contributing to the success of the company in, in a very different way than so many other roles. Now, do you think that's because in other, in, in other space, is that the key word customizable? Cause like in other spaces, you know, if a client comes and says, Hey, I want to make this change to an elevator. I want to make this change to my insurance policy. There's just not the ability to make those kind of changes. Or do you feel like that's just a mindset? Like other markets just don't have a similar mindset or is it the tangibility of seeing the software and being able to communicate what it is? I think it's just, so with, with, and there's probably other industries out there that have this flexibility services, for example, you can often adjust your services that you're offering, but when you're selling a tangible good, the, like our com- the head office in Finland isn't going to redesign an elevator because someone wants an ele- the buttons to be three inches down. That turns into a five hundred thousand dollar change order, right? Or something. Cost and, change, yep. Yeah, yep. And so, and and often, and it also takes approval from like eighteen levels of engineering teams, and it's just not going to happen. Insurance. Now you need to get your you need to get the team to actually like, approve that yeah, we want Yeah, exactly. Yep. Like all these other industries. There's going to be about 10 different stakeholders that are going to get involved. The customer is going to feel like a jerk for even asking for it because we're going to make them jump through so many hoops to potentially maybe one day, 10 years from now, get that thing that they wanted. So it's anyways, versus my experience in tech has been that if you're close to the product, you can really be a very instrumental part in the direction of the company in a sales role. You are the front lines. You're the, you're the person who's learning firsthand from every person that you speak to what the market wants and you have to adapt so quickly to that. And that's the mindset is that you aren't going to have create one product and stick with it for 20 years. It's always going to be changing and sales feeds into that so much more than in a lot of other spaces. Now, at some point your product matures and you're, and you're not going to have, you don't have those same kind of requests coming in. Does that change how you feel about the product that you're selling? I, I'm, I'm sure it will. I think that the companies that I've been working at have been really fast moving. So maybe I just haven't ran into that problem. <laughs> and it's not even a problem to maybe to that experience quite yet. But I still think just, again, the nature of tech is that your product is always going to be adapting and moving so quickly to be competitive that maybe just like my my level of like energy or dyslexia or something, I just like love to have that constantly changing environment, right? So amazing. I know that's the thing that I like about, you know, I've told people a couple of times, you know, I'm very, I'm probably a better salesperson. Like if you were thinking about something like, like I can invent and sell pizza, that's really exciting. Like, hey, we we didn't have this dish and now we have it. But if I had to sell pepperoni pizzas with 13 pepperonis on them, I couldn't do it. Mm. So there's something, you know, there's something about the creation process uh, and the transfer of energy in the in the service component of somebody telling you they have a need, being able to go get it and come back and show it to them and then to say, yeah, that's what I like, that really energizes me in the sales process 
versus if if you were selling just a for maybe a commodity, I, I would struggle to do that. And I think that is a different salesperson. There is a salesperson that can sell a commodity really well. Exactly. Yeah. I the way that I that I think of sales and, and what I really love about it is like, there's so much problem solving and th- critical thinking. And I love the idea of trying to understand what any person's objective is. Like, what are they trying to accomplish? Where are they trying to go? And then just seeing whether anything that I have can help them get there. Interesting. Now, did you get recruited? No, I had worked um, right beside them in a co-working space in Toronto and actually funny enough, so I'm working for this little startup and we had been making this big consideration for about a month and a half on whether we were going to switch from one table to another table that was slightly on the other side of the room because it had slightly better cell reception. And after a lot of deliberation, we decide to make the move the next day, at which point Growth Genius moves into this co-working space and takes the table. So my first interaction (laughs) with them was doing some serious negotiations to trade tables. And then I think it was a year later that I finally joined. That's really funny. Hey, look here, guys. I realize you just got here, but we had already made the decision to take over this table. Yeah, yeah. There's a serious draft here. You can't feel it right now, but it'll come up later. You won't like it. That's 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 awesome. So tell tell me a little bit about the the role. So has that been a role that you know it looks like you've been settled in there for a couple of years? So do you start out, you know, in in the sales role? You're in the saddle. You're selling, and are you managing a team right now? Yeah. So I actually started as a, essentially an account manager. So at our company, we we actually call them client growth managers. But it's our company is a lead generation agency. So we run automated email and LinkedIn campaigns and source contacts and enrich data and create copy for outbound sales teams. So if someone wants to outsource that task of trying to learn how to automate their email LinkedIn outbound, they would hire us. And so my first role at the company was being the person who created those campaigns, ran them. And, and ultimately, like I had to learn how to do all this stuff, which is part of the selling point joining this company was that when I made this move from these like old school industries into tech, I was prepared to just make my, you know, 60 cold calls a day and make it happen. And then you join this new field and you realize, no, that's not what people are doing here. People are running automated LinkedIn, they're doing big uh, marketing campaigns, you need a personal brand when you're in tech, there's like all these different things that you need to do to be a successful salesperson in the tech sector. It's very different than in other more traditional spaces. And I realized that I had no idea how to do any of that. So my first two years in tech were actually pretty challenging. And then when I saw that there was an opportunity to join Growth Genius, I figured what better way for me to learn how to do this stuff well than to fully immerse myself in it. So I started running these campaigns for a whole bunch of businesses around the world and in all sorts of different target markets and industries. And within about six months, because my entire career had been in sales, I got recruited into an account executive position at Growth Genius, so selling our services. And then a couple of months back, I moved into a sales manager role. So our our company's been shifting a lot. Now we actually released a software that we're selling as well as a service that is basically a platform that is combining a whole bunch of tools that are on the market for sourcing contact data, running email and LinkedIn campaigns through like multi-channel and stuff. So anyway, so we're I've 
kind of moved up the rungs a little bit. And now I'm sales manager at the company. Awesome. Now, what? so the one thing that I sort of want to highlight, because you brought it up as kind of an anchor statement, and I felt like his, this is a good topic to talk about, the, the old school transition. So, you know, there's markets that still sell very distinctly different. You know, sales has a technology, has a very distinct process that I think most companies follow. Some of that is probably due to Aaron Ross's work with predictable revenue. But in general, most technology teams are set up very similar, right? They've got an outbound rep, an inbound rep. They've got some kind of email automation. They've got, you know, they may have a data or research team. They're probably using Zoom or Seamless or, you know, some kind of data product. They're running everybody through a, a, a standard appointment, demo, quote, trial process. And then you get into other markets, like I'm sure the elevator, the construction company, those sales process and even the lead generation processes are so different. Can you talk a little bit about that? The differences, why they're different? What are some things, if you're in a service space, what are some things that you think you could adapt or take from the technology space? Is, is the technology space kind of the way to, do you feel like that it's, they are doing it correctly? Just kind of talk about the, the nuances there. Yeah. So the biggest difference with the the types of companies I'd worked for before was that they were predominantly targeting companies and like their clients were within a very small geographic area. So for the elevator company, I was servicing the like Manitoba and Northwestern Ontario region, and there were only so many buildings going up. So for me to spend, you know, a month putting together this really cool automated email LinkedIn campaign and building lists and and everything, I'd probably still only be reaching out to maybe 75 people max, which I could probably go for lunch with all those people and be a lot more effective. So in some industries, it it just still like the the way to do business is to know the people that you need to know very closely. And like really build rapport with those people because they're going to be the people you're working with for the next 40 years if you're staying in that industry versus if you have a very large and spread out target audience, then unless you're doing a really good job of like defining a very close tight niche, which is also like a good thing that you could do, often you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that you can or need to target and that's where it's just like really hard to do that at scale manually. So layering in some level of automation makes your life so much easier and it helps you focus on the right target. So instead of having someone call 100 people a day and having only like 15% of those people actually pick up the phone and then 1% of those people actually answer, you can actually automate that initial outreach. So automate emails out to those people, automate LinkedIn messages out to those people. And then of the 30% that engage with that message, those are the people you should cold call because now they're warm. Now they're people who have actually shown some degree of interest and they're already pre-qualified and your team's going to have so much more success with like that, like all like the sweat and time that they're putting into it. Right. So that's, that's kind of my, my philosophy on the biggest difference, like when to apply automation and when not to 
it, the first thing is who are you targeting and how many people are there in that space? Well, you bring up an interesting point. Like if you're selling elevators or shaft, I'm sorry, elevator shaft. I'm sure you were doing a variety of things, right? The elevator shaft, the components. It all comes together. Yeah, you, you need the shaft yep. for the elevator. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so so my, my guess, you know, you brought up an interesting point. By default, if you only have 35 clients, you inevitably have to sell it to them differently, which I think typically caters to a relationship sale, right? If I only can sell to 35 or 45 or 100 people in a, in a market, how I sell to those people are going to be distinctly very, very different. Do you think there's anything that happened, any tech sales strategies or things that are done that are kind of commonplace? that you look at coming from the outside because you're an outsider, you know, come from a service space into technology that you questioned or you felt like, or do you feel like in general, the technology sales playbook is pretty polished? Okay. So I don't know if this will directly answer your question, but I think that there are a lot of opportunities to create the impression and the feeling and experience of that very personalized sale. So of like someone reaching out to you and talking about your dog and asking you to go for a cup of coffee or for a drink or a steak or whatever, and talking about something that's happening in their market or their space or their industry that will really build that rapport. People, I think people assume that if you're going to do something automated, it has to be tacky. <laughs> like it has to be some like really crappy automated template that sounds something like high cap locks, John, love what you're doing at Kentucky Fried Chicken, LTV America's 11137 <laughs> and food and beverages. And so if you do, if you use automation well, and especially if you take automation and you accept that there's probably going to be a very small manual component to it. So if you layer together automation and things like virtual assistants and outsourcing that can let you do like a little bit of extra personalization at scale and data cleaning you can get that same level of like really high touch sales, but scale at times a hundred. So um, taking, like I, I mentioned really quickly that if you have a very good targeted niche, you can still take your clients out for dinner and like try to build out like a really good rapport that way. And that's not a bad strategy. But what I would recommend is that if you know that you have 10 different industries or let's even say three different key verticals, that you could sell into really well. So maybe you love working with the entertainment industry and you really love working with, with yoga studios and um, other like health and wellness brands. So you can actually create three different campaigns talking about very specific things that are happening with the Lululemon brand and another very specific thing with some sports team that is one of your clients and, and some funny thing that they said and how they mentioned that we should connect with you. And then with uh, the entertainment space, you can talk about a client that you have in the entertainment space and make something very interesting, conversational targeting those people and reach out to hundreds of them and still make it really personalized. But I think where people go wrong is that because they see that they can reach out to 100,000 people, they just launch a campaign reaching out to absolutely everyone with a very generic message when even with that really large target audience, they should still be refining it. They should still be trying to have that kind of steak dinner, kind of trying to get to know you mentality with specific verticals in that larger market. 
Does that make sense, or am I am I rambling? No, no, that totally makes sense. I, you know, I, I think you're sort of getting into the the kind of the subject or the idea of relevance, right? Like, it, it, for most most comp- what happens is you throw you throw these really big non relevant emails out versus trying. The way that I like to think about the way I think about it is if there's a if if there's a I always tell our guys it's like, hey, I want to move our lead generation process from like selling, I think about it as in a, in a kind of an imagery of this. If somebody comes to my house and they knock on the door and say, hey, I want to sell you, uh, you know, window, I want to sell you some windows. And my windows look plenty fine. And they're like, well, hey, if you're not interested in the windows, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we could just come out here and give you a quote. That's totally different than if somebody drove by my house and saw that I had a broken window and came to the door and said, hey, I saw you had a broken window. I'd love to talk to you about uh, getting new windows. I want to be the second guy. And the, and the reality is that the, the, I think the internet and all the stuff that we have gives us opportunities. And you could use uh, an example would be like intent data. Gives you opportunities that you get to be the latter guy in that story first versus the first guy. It's hard to sell insurance. It's hard to replace products that people don't think that they need. If somebody has a pain, or I think I've heard Mark Sears, who's a VC guy, say a burning platform, it's hard to get people to jump to jump off. And so I think that's sort of what you're getting to is like the big mistake that a lot of clients make is they hit they just they hit the neighborhood and just hit everybody with the same message versus focusing on trying to find people that have the problem or at least being able to narrow them down enough that they can speak directly to that to that client. Because people people are attracted to things that are relevant to them, so uh, you know you could use multiple you know multiple use cases. You could think about that. If I'm a VP of sales and you email me, or here's a great case in point. I think of what you're saying. If somebody email, we don't sell to Walmart. So if somebody sends me an email that says that they sell to Walmart and Sears and Amazon, that's totally irrelevant to me. I could really care less who their clients were. But if they label out our three biggest competitors, then that's going to be more relevant and interesting to me as the, you know, as the client. Exactly. Well, when I'm starting to work with a client or, or when we're kind of advising on how to even start thinking about what an automated campaign should look like, there, there's two, two approaches. One is that you either just take some kind of tried and true templates and try to drop in your value propositions and pain points and stuff. And you can kind of, you can go that route. But what I prefer is if you like, assuming that you've been around for a while and you have been able to successfully sell your product at least once or twice, like taking what has worked for you in the past, do you have a rainmaker at your company who just knows exactly what to do when they're put in front of a new potential client? Or if if you had all of the time in the world, the best cup of coffee you've ever had in your life, and you were sitting on LinkedIn, and you had to decide who your next three clients were going to be, what would you do? What would you type in as your criteria of the company? Once you have that company in front of you, how would you decide who at that company you want to approach? Or what three people would you want to approach at that company? And then once you have that person in front of you, their profile, what would you be looking for? Like, would you be looking for things that they had posted? Would you go onto their Twitter blog? Would you go onto their, like their company's LinkedIn postings to see something that like that they just had a new raise or whatever? What would you do? 
what would you reference when you were sending them a connection request? Once they accepted your connection request, then what would happen? Like how deep would you go into following up with them and talking about people that, that they know or things that are happening in their space? So of course, you're not going to be able to replicate all of that 100%, but you can probably get 60, 70% of the way there if you're clever about it, right? So um, trying to take that process and really break it down and see what parts of that can you automate and what parts can you not. And so what you can start doing is actually building out lists of 500, 1,000 contacts that meet those target market criteria that are the types of companies you want to be reaching out to that are the type of personas within those companies that you want to break into. And then if you use VAs and like and research teams and things like that, you can actually fill in that data and say, hey, for each of these contacts, go onto their website and reference something that they're promoting or a new feature that they have or a new product that they're they're promoting or whatever it is, replicate that and put it into a campaign and do it at scale. So there's a lot of ways to maintain that level of personalization if you're smart about it. Yeah, I find that most, so I think this is, I always think this is really funny. I find that most companies don't, don't possess the ability to think deeply about why people buy their product. I don't know why that is, but I, I think there's a, the, the, they don't spend enough time to think about, I know there's a huge, so there's a huge, from my perspective, I feel like there's a lot of debate about B2B, B2C, kind of this idea of having Netflix for businesses, like this Netflix, you know, that, that, that somehow B2B is sort of moving to a B2C buying cycle. And I definitely think that that is impacting business at, at, at a level that has to be at least observed. But I think the reality is businesses are kind of their own organism and, and they have their own culture and they have their own purchasing cultures and they really have their own personalities. And if you spend time really thinking about the business, like pick a business that you want to go after and then trying to understand why it acts the way it does. Because a business has a behavior. Businesses behave like they have a behavior. And, and most people don't spend time really thinking about what causes a company to have to buy something, whether it's a service or a, typically it's a typically it's easy. It's as easy as a, there's a pro, they're not progressing in some way in the business. And when they're not progressing, people get frustrated. It might look like people quit the job. It might look like lots of new people come into the business. It might look like there's all kinds of stuff, but companies have behaviors. And I just find that very few companies really sit around and think about deeply about why people purchase stuff. They spend very little time thinking about the buying behavior. And I, I find that fascinating. Well, In fact, I find that most people that, flat out can't do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, and to take that a step further, I think, and, and I fall into this trap a lot too, and I always have to push myself out of it, is that um, the problem, I think even people will spend a lot of time trying to think about what the company needs. But in reality, what you need to think about is what the individual that you're talking to needs. So maybe that company as like the best thing, if a consultant, management consultant came in, the best thing is that is if your your product costs 30% less than it does. So people will get caught up on, on pricing or they'll think that like, well, they're just really looking for a great team to work with, or they're looking for 
the the best quality product. So they'll find these very generic value propositions that they hear that people, that companies are ultimately looking for. When in reality, if you're talking to the CFO of a company, they want to see exactly how your product's going to impact their bottom line. They don't actually understand the features probably or care about them particularly. If you're talking to the actual champion who's going to be using your product, now they like I always try to think like what's the thing that's making, you know, John my the head of the head of revenue want to slam his head through a wall on Monday morning because everything's gone wrong. And how can I fix his problem? Like what's that that thing when everything went south that I can speak to on the right day? If I send him a message on Monday morning, right when that thing came crashing down, that's when I'm gonna land this. So you have to think about the people and what they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis that your product or service is impacting. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think what's complicated about this conversation is I think both are true. I think the individual actions of the, the individuals in the business create uh, a, a corporate, corporate buying behavior. And, you, and what that... I, I think that's like a little bit of a con. I think that's a little bit of a, I don't know if you'd call it a dichotomy, but it's like it's there's a little bit of friction there because yes, individuals make decisions and have problems that you have to solve, but you also have to you also have to balance that with like if you have a complex product, you probably have a whole team of people that have to make that decision as well, which then makes it a corporate corporate buying behavior. Okay. So both are yeah. true. Yeah. And complex. Well, and so maybe I, I guess I'm coming at it from that, that out, the outbound point of view where it's so in that initial outreach, when you're trying to get something to land and, and be exciting and be worth someone taking the time to dive deeper into, if you're just speaking to the corporate goals, um, unless it's like a really interesting goal and you've done a lot of research into something very specific that they're trying to accomplish. Um, it what I've seen is it doesn't really land like you, you when you're reaching out to a specific person for the first time from a company you need to understand what they're trying to accomplish to get their next promotion or to get through their day to day job. No, I agree. I agree with that. Them. No, I agree with that. No, I hundred percent. I hundred percent agree with that. What, what do you feel like the biggest mistake? You know, outside of sending you know kind of blanketed emails, what's the biggest mistake you see your clients make? Yeah. So I guess. Going further on that point, I think it's it's when they don't go deep enough into their their value propositions. So again, there's like often we'll work with marketing agencies or software development agencies, like areas that on like at a quick glance, they aren't very differentiated. They can all come in and say the same thing. We are we have a very creative team. We think out of the box. We are so innovative. But when everyone is saying the exact same thing, it means nothing. You're kind of you're, you're saying nothing to everyone. So what you need to do is get very specific about the value that you're bringing to that person. So if you're reaching out to the, the head of marketing of an entertainment company, what are the challenges that that head of marketing has in the entertainment space? What's happened to the entertainment space in the last two years throughout COVID? What are they trying to accomplish now? Are they like getting completely overrun by all these new opportunities with the world opening up? Or are they nervous because of potential for a next wave or 
are they is there some are they specifically in music or in in sports or like if you can understand what they're doing and what problems they're running into and if you can speak to how you have experience working with those very specific challenges even if they don't sp- perfectly land they're going to help build trust they're going to show that person that you well, understand I think, I think their that space. Little- yeah. I, well, I think that little thought process, what you just went through right there, I don't think most people, what, what I find as a receiver of these emails is that most people take that into blanket statements and they throw, and they throw them out as kind of this, like these blanket pain points. But the, the exercise that you just covered in the last 30 seconds, that like deep thinking about what, what's causing issues and pain, I find most people can't do that or don't do either can't or don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I think that's like the most important part about prospecting, which is really true. It's probably, I'll tell you what it is. There's a lot of sales leaders that aren't empathetic. You can't go through that process that you went through. If you're not empathetic, you have to be able to think about the person you're selling and have to, have to like be in their shoes. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of salespeople in my experience, Act, the, well, the thing that makes you a good salesperson sometimes is the, the not being able to be empathetic, but it's also the thing that makes you a bad generator <laughs> of leads. Because if you can't, if you can't think about what causes your prospect to buy, you can't. And, and lead generation and sales, in my opinion, are two separate things, which we basically task the VP of sales at a mid-sized company to do both of those tasks. Hey, yo, Catherine, I, I appreciate the time uh, today. This was great. I love the the tips and insights from kind of, there's a lot of people out there that are moving from service businesses, to technology. And so I think you gave a lot of great tips and thanks so much for coming on. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, uh, if you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can get last season's uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always, Remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time.